We've been studying through the books of First and Second Thessalonians for the last several months, uh, and we are very close to the end. In today's passage, we're going to be looking at Second Thessalonians chapter three, uh, verses one through five. If you need a pew Bible, it is found on page nine ninety. Uh, Today we're going to cover the love of God, what should our response be to the love of God, which is to pray, expect animosity, uh, trust in God, have confidence in Christ, and finally come back to the gospel once again. If you have your Bibles, let's, let's read our passage. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the, to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. We're going to start in verse 5. Uh, because we're going to talk about the love of God and the endurance of Christ. And it's going to shape our response into how we re- should respond to the gospel. And so if you, even at the, at the end of today's text, we're going to start there and then work ourselves backwards. Or then we'll go back to verse 1 and work ourselves down. So let's read. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In the last chapter, in chapter 2, Paul is praying for the Thessalonians that they may grow in the relationship with Christ. Verses uh, 16 and 17 says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Pastor Cliff told us that our hearts are comforted and established through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that is working in our lives. It's not ourselves. Paul now is asking for the Thessalonians' heart to also continue to grow. And when he's talking about heart here, he's not just talking about a good feeling. He's talking about, uh, talking about their whole lives. And so, uh, when we talk about the love of God also, he's talking about, and I preached on this back in when we did the God is love, the attributes of God, and I was given the assignment of talking about God's love. And so this is the definition of God's love that I gave back then. It is God freely and eternally gives of himself to others. The ultimate historical demonstration of God's love is seen on the cross of Christ. I'll repeat that for you. God's love is God freely and eternally gives of himself to others. The ultimate historical demonstration of God's love is seen on the cross of Jesus Christ. In that sermon, I talked about God's love is eternal, it is holy, it is infinite, it is unchanging, it is sovereign, it is uninfluenced, and it is gracious. It is overwhelmingly awesome. So why would Paul want their whole lives to be directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ? Remember, it's Christ's not desire that we have the knowledge of God the Father, just knowledge. Christ's desire is that we be in complete union with God. That we, in our relationship with God, are in complete union. Here is the verse um, found in John chapter 17. This is a verse about uh, Christ praying to the Father about the relationship that he wants us to have with his dad. And found in chapter, John 17, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And they may be one as we are one. That is not a knowledge-based relationship. That is a personal relationship. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved, me, loved them even as you love me. Christ's desire is not that we sit up on the outside porch looking in at the family dinner with, between him and his father. Christ's desire is that we come and we sit at the table next to his father enjoying a full relationship that he has with his father. He desires that and he wants that. You're not sitting outside of the Thanksgiving dinner hoping to get inside. You are there and a place of prominence is that Christ has prepared a place for you to come in and sit next to his dad. This special invitation is to sit at the table is what the Apostle Paul is desiring for the people that he's been ministering to here with the Thessalonians. This cannot be obtained, friends, by having more insight. It cannot be obtained by having more wit, more knowledge, or more instruction. If it were so, right, Paul would have instructed us differently here. So it cannot be obtained in that way. The attainment which Paul desires for his friends were not beliefs of the head, but the indwelling of the heart by God. Who else can guide us to this depth of God? Surely not myself or reading a book about the Bible. Only Jesus himself. It's foolishness to think that you can experience the love of Christ, right? Without the engagement of your whole life. Knowing Christ in a personal way. It's not an ascent of knowledge. Again, it's not an ascent of knowledge. I'll say it again. It's not an ascent of knowledge. It is an all-in, all-encompassing who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. The best analogy that I have, and once again, all analogies fall short, right, um, is when I fell in love with my wife, Lauren. Now, I got married when I was 28 years old, so in my 20s, I had a lot of just guy friends. But when I met Lauren, all of a sudden, those interests, those guy friends, just became back, pushed them to the side. I remember distinctly hanging out with her on one day and said, I was going to hang out with one of my buddies and texted him and said, you know what, we're canceling plans today. So I wanted to spend more and more time with her. I wanted my thoughts started going towards her. I kept started rearranging my whole life so that we could spend more time together. I eventually found myself saying, I love you. I found many different ways. I wrote notes to her. I bought her things. I did a bunch of things so that I could get to know her. Eventually, I ended up going to a jewelry store, right? You know, I remember calling up one of my brothers going, am I crazy for doing this? He's like, no, you're in love. Okay, good. And then I proposed to her, and we are married now. Now that breaks down very easily, right? But it's a shame also that we also live in the U.S. because we have this independent lifestyle that we still want to just have control of our own lives. How wonderful would it be that the Lord would just come and be the dictator of our lives? And that he would just rule us and tell us all the time exactly what to do. Well, we didn't have to have the will that fights against him. And so I know that when the Lord lays his hand on our hearts, that he begins to steer a person's life. And when he does that, the whole vehicle starts to become straight and towards him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. The Lord is the one that's going to have to direct us. We don't have the knowledge, we don't have the ability to direct our own hearts to the love of God. 
So this is the prayer that Paul has for the Thessalonians. That may the Lord direct you to his love. So I want to ask you this. When was the last time you marveled at the omnipotent, which is the all-powerful love of God? That you just sat there and thought about it. When was the last time you gave up control and allowed him to direct you into his love? So many times that we go, okay, God, I have to be the one to move towards your love. We can't force ourselves into his love. He's the one that has to direct us to his love. Which leads me to the second part of the verse. The omnipotent, all-powerful God whose love restrained himself into a human body. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now the word steadfastness here is better translated actually as perseverance, endurance. So we can read this verse as, May the Lord direct your whole lives to the love of God and to the endurance of Christ. Let's look at the endurance of Christ real fast. Christ came to heaven, came from heaven to earth. He dwelt in poverty. He was not a rich man. He didn't come from a rich family. He was silent for 30 years before he announced his ministry. During those years, he probably worked as a carpenter. He was in his adoptive dad's business during that time. He was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Rejected, ridiculed, disbelieved by, the, by men right to his face. He was told he must have been from the devil. What he was doing, you must be from the devil to be doing these things told by his family to stop what he's doing because they're bringing shame to his family. He's betrayed by one of the twelve, abandoned by the rest. He was lied about, beaten, scores beyond recognition, nailed to the cross to be crucified, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he became the appeasement of our sins, turn the wrath of God away from you and me and on to himself. And at any one of those moments, he could have called down the angels of heaven to make it all stop. In fact, he didn't even need to call down the angels of heaven. He had the power within himself to be able to make it all stop at any single moment. And Christ knew his fate. He didn't rush it or delay it. Romans 5, 6 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Never once did Christ falter. Never once did he complain. Yes, drops of blood poured down from his head because of the stress. But he who knew no sin became sin for us. That is endurance. And that is what what Paul wants their whole lives to be directed towards. The love and endurance of God and can only be done through the direction of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot figure this out on our own. We need God, Jesus Christ, to direct us to his own love. Christ is our shepherd and leads us by the green pastures and still waters. Sometimes through the valleys that are so dark we cannot see the, uh, the top side but always with his purpose of bringing us nearer and nearer to the full passion of the love of God and the patience of Christ. 
He does not leave us nor forsake us at the bottom of the pit or the top of the mountain. He endured all the way to the end and wants us to direct us to himself. How wonderful is that? How awesome is that? How relieving is that? Is that the Lord wants to direct us to himself so that we can fully understand more of his love and his patience, endurance for us. So what should our response be? We should respond to this, right? Because it is the glorious gospel that is found right there. That Christ came, that he died, and he rose again so that you and I can have a relationship and have a seat at the table with his Father. A response should look probably similar to something where the woman who, who realized that he, she was forgiven came and cried tears and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears in her hair. There's multiple different responses we can find in Scripture, but for today's passage, we're going to look through verses 1 through 4 to find what these responses are. Let's read it. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So we'll start with finally. And finally, all the commentators, uh, the word finally, all the commentators uh, say that actually the better translation here is actually beyond that. Usually you put finally at the very end of your letter and say finally, and then you do your benediction or you do your final prayer. So he's saying he just got done covering. uh, The Lord is going to return, talking about the the man of lawlessness and talking about how God chose you and God loves you. And so beyond that, now... We need to address some church discipline issues. And next week we're going to hear more about those church discipline issues. Uh, and so he's saying that. So he says, you know, the first thing he tells them is pray for us. Now it's very unique here. I want to pull this out. Is that Paul is continuing to teach these Thessalonians how to do community with one another. How to be in relationship with one another. Paul, Silas, and Timothy have been the instructors, have been the teachers, have been the disciples, have been the ones giving them the word of God. And here, Paul now says, pray for us. It's very interesting that he says that because he's saying, come and I also need you to be in my life. Oftentimes, when we are teaching somebody else or that we are the instructors, we're the ones that are constantly giving, but not the ones saying, I also need you in my life. I have to depend upon you in my life as well. And so I give you that, is that if you are discipling somebody, find different ways where you actually desire for them to be in relationship with you, where you find different ways that you need them in their life. Uh, Another way is called asset-based relationships. It's finding out what they have that is an asset to them and say, hey, you know what, you're really good at this. Can you help me out in this area? If not, we always stay on the leadership side. We always stay on the teaching side. And that's not real relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's all. It could be a whole sermon on that. So. So we respond by praying in two ways here. 
respond by the gospel to spread quickly and for the gospel to be honored. The combination here is that he wants to be spread quickly uh, brings out the analogy that that um, uh, that. Ooh. <laughs> That the gospel, yeah, that Paul is comparing the gospel as a runner who's competed in the games and wins the prize and so receives the honor that is due to the gospel. The gospel must not only run or complete in the public arena against other religions and other worldviews, it must also win. And so he's using this analogy that the gospel is going to compete against other things in this world, and then also it's going to win. Now, why do we want the gospel to spread quickly? Let's look back in uh, chapter 2 real fast that Pastor Felty preached on uh, two weeks ago. In chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through all the way down to, uh, to 12, you read about the man of lawlessness is going to come, right? He also gave them that a strong warning that still exists today, that our friends and family members and people in the world who reject God, that God will send a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned. That is a scary thought. In verse 13 he says, But we also, but we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because He chose, because God chose you as first fruits. God chose you. You did not choose Him. Friends, we do the telling, right? We do the telling of the gospel. And God does the choosing. So we need to be praying that the gospel is spread unhindered as quickly as possible. Because our friends and our family, they are dying. We will all die at some point. And so we need to continue to want the gospel to be spread as quickly as possible. And that's what Paul is inviting, that the gospel is spread as quickly as possible because he wants... People who don't know Jesus to be directed into his love, into the endurance of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think that, oh, I, we, we buy into that I am saved, so I am good. And the gospel will spread, be spread out there some way, shape, or form. The truth is yes. God has given us instructions that we should all be the ones doing the telling because we don't know who he's going to choose. Because some reason, because of his mystery, because of him, he chose you. So we pray also that the gospel is honored by being received as truth. We find that because it says, and that as happened among you, and be honored as happened among you. So Paul preached the gospel to them, gave them the gospel, and says it's being honored among you because they believed what it is as truth at that time. I was talking to a couple a few weeks ago uh, that last several months they both came to know the Lord. Uh, when they were young, there was gospel seeds that were put into their, into their lives. They didn't realize it was gospel seeds. But as they, then they walked away from the Lord. They walked away from the church for a period of years. And then about this time last year, they started going to a church. And they realized that during that time that this probably wasn't the church for them. The husband, right before Easter, 
started reading the Bible really for the first time in his life. And as he was getting ready and he was reading the Gospels, it finally struck on him. He's like, wait, God, Jesus came to save a bunch of heathens. It's the first time that he had realized that Jesus came to die on the cross for people. It was after Easter, he was walking in his living room, that all of a sudden, the peace of God came over top of him. The stress, the weight of everything that was going on in his world just left him. And he realized that I have to know more. i got to know more. Continue to dive more and more into the Word of God. Eventually they found themselves here at, at Cedar Crest. Over the summertime, his wife had a very similar experience as well. That the peace of God came over her. And so where she's now taking her Bible into her workplace and wanting to read more and more. The guy said, this has been one of the hardest years at work for me. But he's saying it with a smile. Because he finally had a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's going and talking to other people and finding it at his work and finding that there's other Christians at his work. And he's finally he's talking about it at his workplace. Friends, the gospel changes lives. It really does. It was refreshing to hear what once was their life to now what their life is. How their heart attitude has changed. Because of what Jesus Christ is doing in their lives. So it's being honored as truth in their lives. Let me ask you this. Is the gospel being honored as truth in your home? I want you to think about this. And I bring it up because it's an alarming rate that continues to grow. Sadly, the statistic for pornography being in the Christian home is a staggering 68% of church-going men. The last time I looked, that it was at 40% for women. Between the ages of 18 to 24, 76%, this is for guys and girls, are actively searching for pornography. Over the years, I cannot tell you how many guys have come and just talked to me about their addiction to pornography or other sexual addiction. I'll say this, guys, we have resources for you. I'm praying that in the start of the new year, in the first quarter, we're going to start a sexual purity group for guys. If you find yourself in that realm, in that place, don't wait. Let us know. We want to be able to come and help you. Because I understand how pornography destroys marriages. I was on the phone with somebody two weeks ago about this. It isolates you. It makes you withdraw. It's a nasty, nasty addiction that we need to take care of. Our homes needs dad, need dads and moms to be living out the gospel in front of our kids. Sometimes we can spend far more time honoring many other things besides the gospel in our lives. We can honor our busy schedules. We can honor our work. We can honor many our, our TV shows. Many other things besides the gospel in our lives. Living out the gospel, right, is not just telling our kids the ABCs of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again. There's so much more to it. It's also helping our children to understand how the gospel impacts all areas of their lives. All areas. The gospel has implications and can direct us in those ways. It is, it is truly unloving to not prepare our children in the gospel truths as they grow up. You cannot just say, you know what, when they get to a certain age, this is when I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them the gospel. It has to be sprinkled in again and again and again in all areas of their life. 
Why? Because at some point, Satan will attack them. The age of pornography, or the age where kids are, are seeing pornography for the first time is 11 years old, and it continues to drop earlier and earlier and earlier. Uh, this, the reason I'm talking about this is because next Saturday, and in, in hopefully in this room, we're going to be having a, a seminar that's called Gospel Sexuality, Raising Sexually Faithful Children. And I believe that every grandparent, every mom and dad, every uncle and aunt, or anybody who's going to be in the lives of children should be here for this seminar because you need to be equipped. If you don't feel equipped and being able to have those conversations with your children or with your grandkids, you need to be here. Because if you don't have that conversation, somebody else will. And the chances are that they're going to come with a gospel perspective is very, very low. I believe it is the parent's responsibility to do this. God gave you the children. You're the one that should have these conversations. I was talking to a young dad who was the one who said, Hey, my kids are pretty young. Should I come now? I was like, Absolutely. Because now you talk, start talking about gospel principles, about their sexuality, how God has made them, about what sex is, at a very young age, so that when you finally do need to have a deeper conversation, all the layers are there. You know, we can all joke, right? All laugh. It's like, hey, when did your parents have the talk with you? And you know, how shell-shocked were you if your parents had the conversation? For many people, there was never a conversation. But how important is this? Because this is a huge thing of how God has created us to be. So let's be on the forefront of this and get ourselves equipped so we can have conversations with our kids. So you can sign up on the church app. You can go out to the, the Connection Center. You can go on the, the website. I encourage you, everyone should be there. So here's my shameless plug for the seminar. So ready? We should ex- respond to the gospel and expect animosity. And so, in, found in verse 2, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. If we continue with the runner analogy, the only way to win the race is to compete against someone else. The gospel is not out for a stroll. It's not out for a, a personal best. It's out there to win and to win big time. There are wicked and evil people in Paul's life and Thessalonians' lives and our lives as well who oppose us solely because we believe the gospel. But I don't believe that this passage is talking about people outside the church. The reason is that the wicked here means, uh, the, the direct uh, interpretation is out of place. So, and that we may be delivered from out of place and evil men for not all have faith. There are people we should expect all the time in our midst who are out of place because they have convinced themselves that they believe in the gospel. I was having a conversation two weeks ago. I was invited over to somebody's house um, and to a friend, a friend of his, and I lay there for about two hours just explaining the gospel to them. And they said, yes, but there's a little bit more to it. Because of all the pain and suffering, they may have gone through an immense amount of pain and suffering that I truly never want to go through in my own life and and what they're continuing to, to face, I don't want to face. But they said, because of all that pain and suffering, the Lord will let them in. They also believe that because people were born into other religions, that somehow in God's love, he will let them in as well. And so they would say yes, because I said, well, Jesus himself said, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They said yes, but then they would add this. 
So in their hearts, in their lives, they actually dishonored the gospel. People reveal their faith by the conduct. When things do not go their way, we will always see what they truly believe in, right? You will see their unbelief in the power of the gospel as they come through as a grasp for more control of situations. Their lack of faith explains the hostility toward attitude towards Christ, towards the gospel, and actually to you as well. So our third response is that we need to respond and trust in God. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish and you and guard you against the evil one. Because of time, I'm going to just give you some verses here. Lamentations. Uh, 3.23. <laughs> I've said that word before. Uh, Lamentations 3.23. His faithfulness to creation. Psalm 119.90. His faithfulness to his promises. Hebrews 10.23. His faithfulness to salvation. 1 Corinthians 10.13. His faithfulness to help you in temptation. 1 Peter 4.19. His faithfulness in your suffering. God is faithful. It's one of his attributes. He is and always will be faithful. And so Paul is encouraging Thessalonians to keep up with the commands that were given, that were given to them. So this is our fourth response here. Is that we respond with confidence in Christ. In verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do what we commanded. Paul is very proud of them. That they are obeying what was already given to them. And then also what he's giving them to this letter. But notice that where, where does Paul put his confidence in? He doesn't put his confidence in his communication skills. And he doesn't put his confidence in his leadership abilities. Or his power of persuasion. He doesn't put the confidence in them as well. That they are dutifully living out the gospel. That they are doing it themselves. He puts his confidence completely in Jesus Christ. And this is how we should be. We should be responding. The confidence was that the, they were united in Christ, and it is God's Spirit that is in them. For the Lord perfects what He has begun. He also knows by experience that He Himself should not have confidence in Himself. He should not even have confidence in them that they're able to change their abilities. It looks like this. Happens quite a bit. Happens in my relationships, and I'm assuming it probably happens in your relationships too. Right? You have two people who are professing believers in Jesus Christ to become friends. Um, they are family members. It's a father, son, mother, daughter, uh, husband, wife. Uh, multiple different relationships here. That as they get to know each other, the annoyances which they could handle at one point now begin to grate on each other. And someone in the relationship has the idea, and it's not a bad idea. It's like, hey. Things should change here. And usually when they say that, it's the other person who needs to change. So they bring the change to the person's attention and say, hey, oh, what do you think about this? Or, you know, this is really annoying. You should stop that behavior. Or even, you know, it could be even like a character thing. Hey, you really need to change this. That person can say yes and work on it. Or they can go and say, hmm, I don't see it's a big deal. And so, okay. Because the first person who wants to change was like, no, you really need to change it. And so they'll bring it to the person's attention once again. And depending upon the reaction, it could be an annoyance, right? I got some couples who are already smiling at me right now. Um, it could be an annoyance or like, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. Or it could lead to some conflict. 
But if it's not resolved, the person who first institutes the change will go, no, it needs a change. And will repeat it again and again and again and again and again to the person. What this does, and sadly this reveals my own heart, okay, is that there's a fundamental disbelief in the gospel here. That we believe that if I bring it to their attention enough times that they will change. Or we believe that, because we believe that we have the wit, insight, and knowledge to see the things that they need to change, and so thus they, need, they should change. Or we put so much confidence in them that they themselves have the ability to change themselves. That is one of the problems with modern-day psychology, counseling, self-help books in multiple different ways. Here's a couple of things to think about just for yourself. For someone who insists that the other person must change to make the world a better place, most often does not see their own sin and how they themselves impact the relationship. They're also revealing where they have their confidence and it's not in Christ. It's confidence in their own abilities to change somebody else's heart. It's confidence in that person's ability to change their own heart as well. In my life group, we're studying through the Gospel Center community. And part of the, the, the book, it talks about transformational community and then uh, uh, functional community. A lot of us live in this functional community. Functional community meaning that we have relationships that pretty much just function around us. We work hard for the world to operate the way that we want it to be. And so when we are in conflict, we, realize, we put the blame onto somebody else saying, you are the problem, I cannot be the problem. Transformational community says anytime you have conflict in your relationship is a gospel opportunity for the both of you to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. There's somebody in the group uh, that had the aha moment this past Sunday when we were talking about this. And they said, wait a second. So when I'm in conflict and they're a believer, the same Spirit of God who's in me, remember God, Christ started a good work in you, is also doing a good work in them. So that means God is changing them as well? Well, Yes. Well, oftentimes, friends, and I fall into this, like, I was like, well, God, I am the one, right, that God is changing. I am the one that is praying, so now I need to help address this in somebody else's life, so I must be the one that is always right. Well, no. That's sinful. That's prideful. That's denying that God has the power to, the same God who has the power to save them also has the power to change them as well. So I don't know about you, when I move down that road of trying to influence somebody to what I want them to be, I do a very poor job of being the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. Just ask my wife about this, okay? That I become controlling and manipulative. And when they don't do the things I want them to do, I become irritable and they become irritable too. And so because I put the confidence in myself and not in Christ. And so I encourage you, put the confidence in Christ. In uh, Cliff Boone's class, Gospel of Forgiveness and Freedom, it talks about obedience being ones of the means of grace. Obeying Christ is a means of grace. Putting confidence in Christ is a means of grace.
The more you put your time and confidence on Christ, the far less stressed you will be in your life. I encourage you, we all have these conversations coming in our world, right? That we, are, we know that there's going to be conflict, there's no something's going to happen. Spend more time praying about that conversation than you are planning of how to have that conversation. Because the more you, put your, you start planning it, the more you actually are putting confidence in yourself and in your own abilities. But we all need to put our confidence back into Christ and keep it there. Because who's the one that directs us? It's the Lord. And as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, He makes our paths straight. And He's the one that has endurance, the endurance that went to the cross for us. So here's the last response. Is that we always need to come back to the gospel. Because I imagine you get it wrong and I get it wrong on a pretty regular basis. And so we need to keep coming back to the gospel again and again and again and allowing his good news to continue to transform us into the likeness of him and realizing if somebody else is a believer that he is also making the other believer into his image as well. And he's doing exactly what he wants to do in that person's life just like he's doing in your life as well. That's dependence. That's giving up control and giving it to the Lord. That's not letting go and letting God and letting God. That's not that. There's a lot of work for you to do of continuing seeking God, knowing what to do in those relationships, what to say and what not to say in those relationships as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And we want to honor you with who you are, Lord. Lord, it is very hard for us to give you control, but I thank you that our response can always be coming back to you. So, Lord, guide us and protect us. In your precious name, amen.